This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marlene DeGrude. The Story Girl by L. M. Montgomery. Chapter 9 Magic Seed. When the time came to hand in our collections for the library fund, Peter had the largest, three dollars. Felicity was a good second with two and a half. This was simply because the hens had laid so well. If you'd had to pay father for all the extra handfuls of wheat you fed to those hens, Miss Felicity, you wouldn't have so much, said Dan spitefully. I didn't, said Felicity indignantly. Look how Aunt Olivia's hens laid, too, and she fed them herself, just the same as usual. Never mind, said Cicely. We have all got something to give. If you were like poor Sarah Ray and hadn't been able to collect anything, you might feel bad. But Sarah Ray had something to give. She came up the hill after tea, all radiant. When Sarah Ray smiled, and she did not waste her smiles, she was rather pretty, in a plaintive, apologetic way. A dimple or two came into sight, and she had very nice teeth, small and white, like the traditional row of pearls. Oh, just look, she said, here are three dollars, and I'm going to give it all to the library fund. I had a letter today from Uncle Arthur in Winnipeg, and he sent me three dollars. He said I was to use it in any way I liked so Ma couldn't refuse to let me give it to the fund. She thinks it's an awful waste, but she always goes by what Uncle Arthur says. Oh, I've prayed so hard that some money might come some way, and now it has. See what praying does? I was very much afraid that we did not rejoice quite as unselfishly in Sarah's good fortune as we should have done. We had earned our contributions by the sweat of our brow, or by the scarcely less disagreeable method of begging. And Sarah's had as good as descended upon her out of the skies, as much like a miracle as anything you could imagine. She prayed for it, you know, said Felix, after Sarah had gone home. That's too easy a way of earning money, grumbled Peter resentfully. If the rest of us had just sat down and done nothing, only prayed, how much do you suppose we'd have? It don't seem fair to me. Oh, well, it's different with Sarah, said Dan. We could earn money, and she couldn't, you see. But come on down to the orchard. The story girl had a letter from her father today, and she's going to read it to us. We went promptly. A letter from the story girl's father was always an event, and to hear her read it was almost as good as hearing her tell a story. Before coming to Carlisle, Uncle Blair Stanley had been a mere name to us. Now he was a personality. His letters to the story girl, the pictures and sketches he sent her, her adoring and frequent mention of him, all combined to make him very real to us. We felt then, what we did not understand till years later, that our grown-up relatives did not altogether admire or approve of Uncle Blair. He belonged to a different world from theirs. They had never known him very intimately, 
or understood him. I realize now that Uncle Blair was a bit of a bohemian, a respectable sort of tramp. Had he been a poor man, he might have been a more successful artist. But he had a small fortune of his own, and lacking the spur of necessity or of disquieting ambition, he remained little more than a clever amateur. Once in a while he painted a picture, which showed what he could do, but for the rest he was satisfied to wander over the world, light-hearted and content. We knew that the story girl was thought to resemble him strongly in appearance and temperament, but she had far more fire and intensity and strength of will, her inheritance from King and Ward. She would never be satisfied as a dabbler. Whatever her future career should be, into it she would throw all her powers of mind and heart and soul. But Uncle Blair could do at least one thing surpassingly well. He could write letters. Such letters! By contrast, Felix and I were secretly ashamed of Father's epistles. Father could talk well, but as Felix said, he couldn't write worth a cent. The letters we had received from him since his arrival in Rio de Janeiro were mere scrawls telling us to be good boys and not trouble Aunt Janet, incidentally adding that he was well and lonesome. Felix and I were always glad to get his letters, but we never read them aloud to an admiring circle in the orchard. Uncle Blair was spending the summer in Switzerland, and the letter the story girl read to us among the fair, frail, white ladies of the walk, where the west wind came now with a sigh, and again with a rush, and then brushed our faces as softly as the down of a thistle, was full of the glamour of mountain-rimmed lakes and purple chalets, and snowy summits old in story. We climbed Mount Blanc, saw the hung frau soaring into cloudland, and walked among the gloomy pillars of Bonavard's prison. Finally the story girl told us the tale of the prisoner of Chilean, in words that were Byron's, but in a voice that was all her own. It must be splendid to go to Europe, sighed Cicely longingly. I'm going some day, said the story girl airily. We looked at her with a slightly incredulous awe. To us, in those years, Europe seemed almost as remote and unreachable as the moon. It was hard to believe that any one of us should ever go there. But Aunt Julia had gone, and she had been brought up in Carlisle on this very farm. So it was possible that the story girl might go too. "'What will you do there?' asked Peter practically. "'I shall learn how to tell stories to all the world,' said the story girl dreamily. It was a lovely golden-brown evening. The orchard and the farmlands beyond were full of ruby lights and kissing shadows. Over in the east, above the awkward man's house, the wedding veil of the proud princess floated across the sky, presently turning as rosy as if it was bedewed with her heart's blood. We sat there and talked until the first star lighted a white taper over the beech hill. Then I remembered I had forgotten to take my dose of magic seed, and I hastened to do it, 
although I was beginning to lose faith in it. I had not grown a single bit by the merciless testimony of the hall door. I took the box of seed out of my trunk in the twilight room and swallowed the decreed pinch. As I did so, Dan's voice rang out behind me. "'Beverly King, what have you got there?' I thrust the box hastily into my trunk and confronted Dan. "'None of your business,' I said defiantly. "'Yes, tis.' Dan was too much in earnest to resent my blunt speech. "'Look here, Bev. Is that magic seed, and did you get it from Billy Robinson?' Dan and I looked at each other, suspicion drawing in our eyes. "'What do you know about Billy Robinson and his magic seed?' I demanded. "'Just this. I bought a box from him for for something. He said he wasn't going to sell any of it to anybody else. Did he sell any to you?' "'Yes, he did,' I said in disgust, for I was beginning to understand that Billy and his magic seed were errant frauds. "'What for?' "'Your mouth is a decent size,' said Dan. "'Mouth? It had nothing to do with my mouth. He said it would make me grow tall. And it hasn't. Not an inch. I don't see what you wanted it for. You're tall enough.' "'I got it for my mouth,' said Dan with a shame-faced grin. "'The girls in school laugh at it so. Kate Mars says it's like a gash in a pie.' Billy said that the seed would shrink it for sure. Well, there it was. Billy had deceived us both. Nor were we the only victims. We did not find the whole story out at once. Indeed, the summer was almost over before, in one way or another, the full measure of that shameless Billy Robinson's iniquity was revealed to us. But I shall anticipate the successive relations in this chapter. Every pupil of Carlisle School, so it eventually appeared, had bought magic seed under solemn promise of secrecy. Felix had believed blissfully that it would make him thin. Cicely's hair was to become naturally curly, and Sarah Ray was not to be afraid of Peg Bowen any more. It was to make Felicity as clever as the story girl, and it was to make the story girl as good a cook as Felicity. What Peter had bought magic seed for remained a secret longer than any of the others. Finally, it was the night before what we'd expected would be the judgment day. He confessed to me that he had taken it to make Felicity fond of him. Skillfully indeed had that astute Billy played on our respective weaknesses. The keenest edge to our humiliation was given by the discovery that the magic seed was nothing more or less than caraway, which grew in abundance at Billy Robinson's uncle's in Markdale. Peg Bowen had had nothing to do with it. Well, we had all been badly hoaxed. But we did not trumpet our wrongs abroad. We did not even call Billy to account. We thought that Lee said was soonest mended in such a matter. We went very softly indeed, lest the grown-ups, especially that terrible Uncle Roger, should hear of it. We should have known better than to trust Billy Robinson, said Felicity, 
summing up the case one evening when all had been made known. After all, what could you expect from a pig but a grunt? We were not surprised to find that Billy Robinson's contribution to the library fund was the largest handed in by any of the scholars. Cicely said she didn't envy him his conscience, but I am afraid she measured his conscience by her own. I doubt very much if Billy's troubled him at all. End of chapter 9